0: The only tool missing from your belt, Simpro, total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Neil Fergus, Director of Intelligent Risks. Neil, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. So, Neil, you have, over the course of the last 20 or 30 years of your career, been instrumental in creating the security overlay for. A number of major international events ranging from the olympics to the commonwealth games to a multitude of fifa events rugby events and so on just talk us through that a little bit for people who may not be familiar with your background
2: uh yeah i worked in the australian government i uh was on a diplomatic posting in europe came back to run the middle east branch and the planning for security for the sydney 2000s was deemed to be Uh, not up to par, and a number of decisions were made at state and federal government level, at state level. Most notably, they appointed a very brilliant man named Paul McKinnon as the commander of Olympic security. Um, Far less brilliant was the appointment of me as the senior federal government representative in Sydney. And um, to be honest, John, I didn't think I'd do another major event afterwards because governments did that, and I went into the private sector. Uh, which just shows how wrong a person can be because within months of finishing the, uh, wrapping up the Sydney Games, we were engaged to do the South American Games in Argentina and anyway, it, as you pointed out in the intro, it just went on from there. So it's over 10 Olympic Games, seven Commonwealth Games, four FIFA World Cups and a plethora of other events, uh, multi-sport events or so on and so forth.
1: Now, for those people who are listening to this that aren't necessarily familiar with what you do, when we talk about creating the security overlay for something like an Olympic Games, what does that look like?
2: Well, it starts with the bid. So we've done the Brisbane 2032 Olympic bid, security and safety components. And that's to provide... Uh, a forward-looking view on the anticipated risk environment, which itself will help inform how you propose to put together the security operation. And quite clearly, if you're in a very high-risk environment, you have a much more extensive security overlay, security operation, uh, probably down, 100% searching and screening, everything that is part of those games. When, if you're in a more benign environment, you have some discretion there based on the risk appetite. So Brisbane, for example, the model is very clearly the villages, and, I, and, and if your listeners are thinking plural, well, what's he on about? There is a main village, but there are also satellite villages because no multi-sport event anymore is centred in one confined locale. Even the last Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in 2018 had events in Townsville, um, Cairns, Brisbane, up in the mountains for mountain cycling, etc. cetera. Right. And the next Commonwealth Games coming to Australia in 2026 in Victoria is spread all over the state, from Geelong to Tiroga to Sheffield to Ballarat to Bendigo. So there's very, very important first step in getting a risk assessment, which is not etched in stone. It's not fixed. Obviously, the environment between now and 2032 for Brisbane can change and probably will change. And the risk ratings will flux. But that is key to actually starting the development of your key planning principles. And with the principles comes the model. And these days, John, we have pretty much, for a Commonwealth and Olympics, you have a blended model Private security, coordinated, led, delivered by the organising committee. The lead police jurisdiction in Victoria 2026, obviously Victorian Police, 2032 Olympics, Brisbane, it's going to be the Queensland Police. But also, because of the pressures on resources, there is uh, invariably a military component, and I don't mean just for the medal ceremonies. Uh, and the and the marching bands, I I mean some significant logistics support, such as we had from the British military for the recent, or the most recent Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games, um, and that needs to be charted out. And of course, business cases need to be developed and budgets need to be requested and obtained. Um, you can't do this three months before an event. There's a there's a necessary planning cycle in terms of getting funding approvals and then making sure that you develop the resources and and contracted security, putting together the tender, evaluating the submissions, uh, determining who the providers, plural, will be uh, and what the training and what the timelines will be because the providers themselves uh, aren't necessarily hanging around waiting for a Fixed-term special event to build their uh, their business plan for the year, okay, or so underpin their balance sheet for the year.
1: So let's let's just dig a little bit deeper into that for a second, because obviously from your point of view, you develop the overlay in which you make recommendations, uh, you make suggestions, and all the rest of it. But the Olympic organising committee will have final say over what happens. You don't actually. And correct me if i'm wrong you don't get to mandate this is what must happen this is what's going to happen like it has to be a cooperative effort between yourself state police private resources and so on
2: yeah if i you know, use the brisbane 2032 example there was a bid set up by the premiers up there premier's department uh the 2032 task force we worked for them to build this plan together and we, of course we consulted closely with queensland police And Queensland Fire and Rescue and Queensland Ambulance, less so Queensland Ambulance, but nonetheless still an important component um, to get, well, having done a risk assessment, socialised it to them, got their agreement with that. We then had a common ground in terms of what we believed needed to be resourced. Um, those government agencies, and we also went down to the federal government, by the way, to Emergency Management Australia and the Ministry of Sports, um, after we got a, a preliminary agreement with Queensland state agencies uh, and got their buy-in, notional, because there's, some of this will require cabinet agreements. And so there's a little bit of a, a, a dancing act there about, well, you're not going to be legally or financially held to this, but we need to put in a very well-fleshed-out proposal from uh, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, to the International Olympic Committee so it can make a judgment. And you and your listeners might recall, John, that the judgment was actually made at the IOC International Olympic Committee General Assembly that happened coincident with the Tokyo 2020 Games which just to confuse things a little bit because the COVID actually occurred in 2021. But the IOC looked very carefully at all the elements of that bid, of which security was only one, and came back with a number of questions on various parts of that bid. I think, um, and I'm not blowing out our particular trumpet, because as you said, this requires a collegiate approach. But I think Australia can be quite pleased with the fact there were no substantial questions directed back at us about the security component of that bid. Yep. Not about the risk assessment. It was accepted as credible, which is not always the case when somebody's writing a risk assessment to help them win an event 10 years down the track. Yep. Um, But also the model that we had, the resources in terms of who will do what and what those numbers are likely to be. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, a
1: good result for Queensland and Australia. A great result for Queensland and Australia. And I guess the reason I wanted to sort of drill down and find out exactly where responsibilities lie and all the rest of it is because over the course of... 10 or more Olympic Games, it's fair to say we have seen some challenges across the security space, and they're not challenges that you are necessarily directly responsible for. In fact, they're often things that, to my understanding, have arisen in contravention to advice that you may have given or things that you may have said. Like, for example, let's take the London-Birmingham Games where we had an issue around the provision of personnel and all the rest of it. And this cuts to the heart of what I want to talk to you about today, Because ASIAL has been doing a great deal over the last probably three, well, many years, but in particular the last year with the National Draft Security Act and all the rest of it around trying to get a national license and all the rest of it, because this is one of the things we're going to need as we come up to... The, the Victorian 2026 Commonwealth Games, the 3032 Olympic Games and whatnot to cater to surge capacity. Um, so can we talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen arise over the last 10 or so Olympics and what we need to be looking at here in Australia to get right between now and and twenty twenty six and twenty thirty two and beyond, and some of these other events like the men's and the women's rugby in twenty twenty seven and twenty twenty nine, to ensure that the industry is set up for those events.
2: Yep. Look, I think what there's there's a common misconception in event organizing committees that there is a infinite number of contracted and licensed security guards just waiting around for one of these events. And keep in mind that uh, Commonwealth and Olympic Games, counting the period from when the, the, the final period of training, when the village opens and the teams bump in, to when the teams bump out in the couple of days after closing ceremony, we're talking about three weeks. Yeah. And we need to apprise the executives of these organising committees for the fact that there is no massive surplus of contracted licensed security guards just waiting for this opportunity. Mm. And also, we have to apprise these people that even the best-intentioned security providers are not able to scope up to the level that some people might imagine at relatively short notice and for a very short period of time. Hence the blended model, of um, private police and military has really become accepted as de rigueur, the standard. And, of course, we don't want to see the private contracted security industry lose out, not at all. We want it to be fully exploited. But bear in mind with Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, uh, when there was a failure by the organising committee to deliver the contracted guards that it had told Everyone were going to be available. They sent, uh, they got two charter planes of con- contract security guards from New Zealand to fly over with all the licensing challenges associated with that. Yeah. Um, we have seen some, it was a failure. The contract security operation at Gold Coast was an unmitigated failure for a variety of reasons which can't be sheeted home to the security providers. It goes back to the organising committee and the model that they insisted to the event owner the Commonwealth Games Federation in London would work, was robust and would work. Uh, And the Commonwealth Games Federation said to them, we are not confident in that. So two battalions of army reserves were um, on standby at Inogra Barracks ready to fill the gap. That didn't happen at the at the appropriate time either. So these are these are, it's not a matter of pointing the finger back and just playing a blame game. it's what we've got to learn from that with these huge events that are coming, and to make sure that that doesn't happen again.
1: Yeah. And so well, if we take the 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 Brisbane Commonwealth Games as an example, What do we need to do differently or what should we be focusing on now as an industry that are the things that are within our control that need to be put in place before some of these major events to make it more feasible and and smoother running?
2: Yeah. Um, The international event world learned a lesson from London 2000 Olympics where there was uh, an even greater catastrophic failure of contract security. Um, largely because there was an exclusive contract given to just one company, one provider for the entire event. And under the terms of that contract, that provider tried to insist that uh, current guarding contracts at working venues like Earls Court, Wimbledon, Lords, um, the list goes on, uh, were null and void in terms of their Uh, contracted security, and they had to vacate the venue or novate under contract to the game security provider. Well, of course, it all went to hell in a handbasket. Right. So one of the key learnings out of that was do not contract just one provider. Yep. Because other gardening companies are not in a rush to novate their personnel. What surge personnel excess personnel are on their books gold coast even adopted that and there were several providers for gold coast the yeah. problem one of the problems was that there was no uh, contractual controls uh to mitigate the numbers that the organizing committee expected the providers to turn out with and there have to be. There has to be some realistic considerations uh, when guarding company Acme says, you know, we, we have 1,800 contracted security in Brisbane in the field in existing jobs and we've got a pool of approximately 250 or 300 that we can bring to the games. Well, you need to understand that these people know their business. Yeah. And putting the an, onus on them, uh, okay, we will... Expect those three hundred. And by the way, to get this contract, you will need to deliver another five hundred.
1: Yep. Uh,
2: so we had several guarding companies competing in the same market, trying to recruit additional tra- train, uh, recruit and train additional contracted guards for a short-term gig. So there was uh, no guarantee of longevity for these people in the in the industry at all. And of course, what happens is a number of these people sign up out of need, do the training because they get a small payment for that and continue to look for other full time job opportunities.
1: Yeah. So, is uh, it, is it, Birmingham, is-
2: fortunately, did recognize, particularly in the post COVID environment, that the labor market was under incredible strain as a number of industries, and particularly the hospitality, Um, industry was restaffing for, you know, the opening up of restaurants, cafes, et cetera, et cetera. So there needs to be an appreciation of the finer skills that exist at executive levels in this industry and organising committees might have some very bright people that are brought in from wherever. They need to listen to the advice of the industry on how it operates and how they can fashion a games model for success and not have it shaped for failure, almost certain failure, as has happened a couple of times in the past.
1: How important is it in your estimation for a country like Australia or coming up to a major event like a Commonwealth Games or an Olympic Games to have at least national transportability of licensing or preferably a national licensing model where we can get surge capacity from other states and not have to have special provisions for it. It's just this is one of the things that you do. And if that's important, how do we get government to listen to that and and get them to understand that that's important?
2: Damn good question. Um, And I can go back to 2005 where I did a review of airport security and policing for the Commonwealth of Australia and one of the key recommendations in that was the need for a national licensing system for the security sector. Um, I could refer you to comments where then Prime Minister John Howard said we are accepting all of the recommendations of this review and I'm referring it to a public servant uh, working group to implement. Now, many of those recommendations for that review of airport security and policing were implemented, obviously, given your question, John. Yep. That one fell by the wayside. Okay. I was party to another review for the Commonwealth Government in 2012, same recommendation, same result. Right. It's ludicrous.
1: So... I mean, there's obviously been a great deal of discussion over the last 20 years or more around why it is that there seems to be a reluctance to adopt a national model, whether it be that the states see it as a a source of revenue, although there are people within licensing in the various states who would disagree and say that they don't actually make money out of it. It's a, it's a cost exercise for them um, to a whole multitude of other things. But it seems to me on this one point that this is actually something that's almost crucial to successful international events. Cause we need to be able to draw in people from all over the country, rather than just trying to create short-term guard supply.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Look, uh, (laughs) Can you imagine if in the United Kingdom, for example, that there's the Security Industry Association, the SIA, national, like Asia, but um, if they had licences for each county? Yeah. Surrey, Sussex, Worcestershire, Manchester, it's ludicrous. Um, And portability of those licence arrangements in Australia uh, can be very important in uh, mitigating the problems associated with getting the numbers for a major event. But frankly, it could be argued legally that it's a restraint of trade in business as usual days. Okay. Um, there, there is legislation in Australia called the Mutual Recognition Act. But again, for some reason, the security license seems to be ignored in that context.
1: Well, I think the argument that many of the, the licensing bodies would say is that there's a, a disparity between licensing requirements or licensing standards from state to state and territories, and so therefore some are reluctant to adopt the the recognition of licensing. But it doesn't change the fact that this is still something we need to be looking at doing, in my view, anyway. Do we need to be looking at creating uh, different tiered or licensed classes Because it seems to me if you're trying to create a surge capability for international events, we don't need all of those people to be fully qualified security guards. If you've got a concierge function where someone is simply standing on a gate checking a bag, could you have five concierges to one licensed security guard and then three licensed security guards to one police officer? I mean, what would that look like?
2: Um, Look, absolutely. Um, And it does happen. Not, not necessarily the structured way that we would think, but one example is when the guarding operation failed at Gold Coast 2018 at Carrara Stadium. Um, there were, I can't remember, 40 screening queues and only about staff for 15. Uh, the management, the executive from the organising committee were down there on the screening queues and at uh, even at the sydney olympics to overcome the uh, the challenges in terms of numbers we had olympic volunteers in policing program ovps a very um not doing licensed jobs but certainly on the screening lines uh and there and there are people who need to be at, at the front of the screening lines directing people on you know empty your pockets or, or make sure you've got your bag in this way or whatever preparing them for the smooth throughput There's wayfinding in front of that, Um, and then there are people behind. So there are roles for volunteers and also for venue services, as they're generally referred to, or event services personnel to assist. But the OVIPs concept was uh, particularly successful. I think we got 5,000 people under that program and specifically recruited from Surf Life Saving Australia, um, Country Fire Brigade, Uh, Rural Fire Service and another agency, uh, volunteers, but volunteers that are used to working in a semi-disciplined framework and with radio communications.
1: Yeah. Okay. So if you were to have your way of things and you were able to wave a magic wand and say, this is what I'm going to do in the lead up to 2026 might be a little bit close, but this is what I'm going to do in the lead up to 2032. Here's the top handful of things that I think we need to change in Australia for security to make this thing run smoothly based on previous experience at the last few games. What would they be?
2: Um, I've had a meeting with Victoria in 2026 this morning, and we've been talking about this and clearly Their timeline is narrowing rapidly and they have an enormous amount to do. Uh, And they've only just appointed their executive director of security. So that's who I was talking to. Certainly uh, trying to exploit state-of-the-art technology is very important to to reduce the numbers of security guards. Uh, And as we discussed this morning, There are some very important security job opportunities associated with that, but it keeps the numbers down. Yep. So um, a very simple example in terms of access control within certain stadiums, like the, the, the main stadium where an opening ceremony is, there's front of house, there's back of house, there's accredited only, uh, in terms of holders of high office, etc. And then there's the general public. So there can be a lot of personnel required to do that when you are looking at tickets or looking at accreditation passes uh, for literally tens of thousands of people. So the issue these days, John, is. Um, if you have an accreditation pass with electronic barcoding and a hologram, you reduce the amount of people that need to do that because you can put it under a barcode reader or a hologram reader. Yep. And and also with facial recognition technology, the whole thing is automated and able to say clear green light through with that and, and knowing that I haven't actually lent this pass to somebody else. That it is my face. Yep. Um, Unfortunately, that was one thing that was missing uh, on the village, the athlete's village at the Gold Coast, which became an absolute quagmire with numerous uh, contract security. Well, look look at it this way. You've got um, several thousand athletes go to the dining hall and then they go back into what's called the residential zone. Yep. And they're all going through a checkpoint. And without having technology to help, people have to physically look at each one of these passes and do a face manual face recognition to let them through. Yeah. What could go wrong?
1: <laughs> yeah. 20. Yep.
2: Um, that, that's the Tokyo pass. Uh, and you can see they had, oh, in the village there, I can't remember, 12,000 people worked like clockwork, uh, with minimal staffing required there. Yeah. Well, minimal. There's still quite a few. There's yep. quite a few access yep. control points Yeah, and, and a lot of people, but um, without it, almost impossible. Yeah. Um, uh, AI on CCTV offers enormous benefits and efficiencies if used properly. Um, And certainly that should must be the trend. Uh, So you've got movement-activated alarms rather than having staff uh, patrolling closed doors, checking closed doors. Yep. Um, The sort of stuff that the security industry is now very well attuned to and adept at using. But um, events... Uh, are probably been a little bit slower in some respects. You know, would you put that sort of technology into Eureka Stadium at Ballarat? No, probably not. But now it's going to host the athletics for a Commonwealth Games. There's good reason to put it in. Yeah, and there's a legacy for the community, for the ground, and for the community going forward afterwards. Um, there's no no legacy for anybody if we have to bring in two hundred. ADF diggers, put them in a tent city to supplement the uh, contracted security.
1: Yeah. What about things like, obviously, during some of these major events, there are or there have been in the past some issues around subcontracting arrangements with people contracting out to other people, contracting to third-party people and all the rest of it, and then issues of knowing who's actually meant to be on site, who's qualified to be on site and so forth. How important is it to be able to quickly and readily identify the people who are meant to be there, not from an athlete point of view or from a dignitary point of view, but from an actual security personnel point of view?
2: Absolutely critical. Um, And there's a blanket accreditation process for all workforce secure and volunteers that needs to be adhered to. Um, We have experienced some problems with some guarding providers in the past at major events in this country. Um, It's inexcusable in the current environment uh, with the technology that exists uh, but it also brings me back to your earlier question about national licensing. Uh, we think as a bare, bare minimum. Of course, there should be um, a, a, an all states police criminal record check. Not every state is doing that.
1: Yeah, and and I know that not all states and territories have yet opened up their their licensed database. To companies to be able to run computer checks on whether or not someone's license is current, which qualifications they hold under that license, um, what they are and aren't certified to do. Is that a step that you feel is imperative for these sorts of things so that when people are turning up on site and you say scan a license at a particular access point, the people running the venue can actually see, yes, this is John. Yes, he is qualified to be here. Yes, his license is still current. And yes, he holds a current level two first first aid.
2: Yep. Yep, absolutely. And again, I won't name the event, but, you know, we've had an issue with a guarding company that was paying some people to fill out the forms, the accreditation forms for staff, uh, new hires in the contracted security industry. Uh, you know, again, what could go wrong with that in terms yeah. of declaring their antecedents where, where they came from? What, the, what their training and qualifications were, et cetera. So yeah. um, no, there's no excuse for that, but, you know, that's an example too of where a guarding company was scrambling to try to get the numbers that it was supposed to do under the head contract.
1: Yeah. So – I mean, we're getting sort of close to the time limit on this because I don't want to keep you longer than necessary because I know you're super busy. But if we had to sort of boil it down to here's the top two or three priorities that I think we really need to sort of be looking at for these major events. You've mentioned the, uh, the, the use of artificial intelligence in CCTV to help monitor crowds. You've mentioned... Uh, more effective use of access control technology and one-as-to-one one facial recognition and identification. When it comes to the actual physical side of the industry, is there a takeaway there that you would say, look, this is something that we really need to have in place?
2: Um, look, I think increasingly we're going to find that uh, security providers uh, are going to have, have an integrated offering too. And I think that's that's a positive uh, medium, long term, and also for events, it gives gives the um, clients more options. So when a when a guarding company says, "Well, yes, we, we can give you guards, but we can also provide you with um, a number of technological advances to get best value out of those guards," even, and this has been a problem at different events, uh, a smart simple and effective rostering tool, um, database tool. Yep. Data basin tool. yep. Um, again, without, I'm sure you and a number of the listeners can recall examples of events where guards were deployed to certain places and they didn't get their food. They did the transport to pick them up and take them back to a hub post-shift didn't come yep. or didn't take them to uh, the deployment point, um, they're very, very serious problems when it hits a, a, a huge event of the, the scale and complexity that we're talking about.
1: Yeah. So my last question to you uh- There's probably a number of people listening to this, whether they be systems integration companies or whether they be, uh, you know, security personnel providers or whatever that think, look, unless I'm in that top tier of one of the big sort of four or five providers or integrators or whatever it may be, there's no role for me in these major events. Is that the case or is it a case that... Any company, no matter how large, how small, whatever, if they've got good ideas, good technology, good people can get involved, and if so, how?
2: Oh, there's massive opportunities. and And just to wind back a little bit, there is nothing wrong with a small provider contracting to a larger provider, provided it is all appropriately declared to the client and the standards aren't compromised in terms of training. and and licensing and qualifications. Yeah. There's no problem at all with that. Um, But equally, when we're talking about more dispersed major event models, um, and I mentioned Gold Coast had Cairns, Townsville, um, up in the hinterland, Gold Coast, hinterland, Brisbane, for diving and for cycling. There uh, are opportunities like that again with Melbourne or Victoria 2026, where we have a number of venues scattered around in uh, small towns where a company might say and negotiate. We will just do um, women's cricket at Trowulan, or we will we we can organise and provide the contract guarding service. For the ocean swim down at Anglesey.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, accommodation and transport are going to be problematic for all staff in relation to a number of these events. So smart solutions are required. And it may, may well be that one security provider says, OK, we know the state or we know the town. We may not have many people there, but we can put together a package that can look after this venue for that period of time
1: yeah and i guess the the flow-on effect for some of these major events too and this is for the government if you're listening to this from anyone for the government if we can get it right and we can do it well and we can show the world that australia is a great secure safe venue that's got all their systems and procedures in place it makes us a much more attractive location for a greater number of events i am assuming is that correct
2: Absolutely, and we have a plethora of these events coming because of the perception, hopefully actual accurate, that we do events well. Uh, and apart from the big ones that we've spoken about, John, there are a number of other international championships coming. Uh, and, and the Olympics, there's got to be test events in the two-year period leading up to the Olympics, international standard events in every sport. Yeah, Some of those will be regional championships. Some of them will be world championships. So there is a lot more in the pipeline to come. Yeah. And the other thing that our listeners should be aware of, we do not want a one-size-fits-all approach major events anymore. That's ludicrous. We do not want walk-through metal detectors at Trelogon or at Ipswich. Right. A Tier 2 venue needs to have its uh, security plan predicated on a robust, credible risk assessment. And in Birmingham, I saw a plan for the, um, well, to be specific, at a place called Leamington Spa in Warwickshire for the Lawn Bowls. the, The first cut security plan looked like it was for the Bank of England. Right. A sleepy little brook and country, idyllic country setting in the middle of nowhere for the lawn bowls. Walk through metal detectors. Hello? So what then? Bag rummage.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: Ticket rip, well, in fact, ticket identification through barcode reader and accreditation check. Uh, And, of course, if there's anything uh, suspicious or of concern, then you have handheld metal metal detectors to wand
1: over someone. And again, to come back to your earlier point about artificial intelligence in CCTV, you would be much better off. I am assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, rather than having you know magnetometers or walk through metal detectors, having object left and object found CCTV. So that if someone did walk in and leave something in a place for a period of time, CCTV would automatically notify someone and say. There's an object there that wasn't there five minutes ago and it's been there for 15 minutes. You need to check it out. Correct.
2: Electronic alert.
1: Yep. Okay. Neil, thank you very much. If people want to find out more about your organisation, where do they go? Uh,
2: website, www.irisks.com.
1: And uh, as a final side note before we get out, you've just come back from a trek in the Himalayas Raising money for the Himalayan Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that money goes to and how people can support it?
2: Our little team raised over seventy five thousand dollars on this trek, um, all all to be used by the Australian Himalayan Foundation for existing programs, uh, most of which are education. We built rebuilt over forty schools that were destroyed. Australia has, Australian Himalayan Foundation after the devastating earthquakes, also a number of health programs up in the Himalayas. There aren't hospitals, um, which is not so much of of a problem for robust people who are able to take their illness down to lower altitudes, but if you're incapacitated, it is. So uh, we're putting money into programs that take expertise up into the mountains. And the other one in particular is midwives, Uh, Most of the births are done in small farmhouses, little villages, uh, because by the time someone gets to arrival, they can't go down to the hospital. But so sending up trained Himalayan Foundation, trained midwives to expecting mums is uh, a very smart solution for this and hopefully will reduce the horrible mortality rates that currently exist up there.
1: And if people want to find out more about the Australian Himalayan Foundation and how they can support that, where do they go? Australian Himalayan Foundation website. Um, and the
2: one thing that uh, a number of us particularly like who support this is, uh, and there's a lot of Australian government funding going there now too, but uh, the tooth to tail ratio is excellent. So most of the staff in the Australian Himalayan Foundation Office are Volunteers, I think from memory, there's four full-time staff. All the directors are unpaid. So most of the money Approximately 85% of the money all goes to the programs, 15% to governance, compliance, and salaries of the full-time staff. So it's making a big difference, and uh, I had the good fortune to go up there on this occasion. This is the third time I've done it with Peter Hilary, the son of Sir Edmund, uh, who is one of the directors of the foundation, and uh, we were absolutely thrilled to see what the dollars that have been contributed have done and the difference that it's made to the lives of people who work really hard. Um, it's in their DNA. And what we like to say about the people in the Himalayas is, is they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for a, a hand up. Yep. Um, the, the schools that are rebuilt there, we, we provide the money for the materials, fly in the roofing. Uh, we've had engineering firms here design earthquake resistant structures the people themselves put it together yeah like an ikea patch on yeah um the villagers themselves more than happy to do all the front work
1: yeah well just another example of some of the wonderful things that the people in the security industry get behind and do that have nothing to do with security industry
2: yeah and a number of Asian members thank you very much you've been wonderful contributors for which we're all very grateful
1: Yeah. Neil, well, thank you very much for your time. Let's uh, watch this space and keep track of this as we move closer to 2026 and 2032 and the other events in between, and I'm sure we will speak again. Pleasure, John. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, Uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.
0: The only tool missing from your belt, Simpro, total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work.